Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're beginning an exciting new edition of Dr. John's series, An Alternative Lifestyle. And today we begin with a message that's entitled, An Alternative Lifestyle. So open your Bibles to the book of Philemon as we join Dr. Newfeld now. During this week, we're going to be doing a short series on the book of Philemon. It's the shortest of Paul's 13 letters in the New Testament. This book provides us with an excellent snapshot of how the Christian faith changes the relationship that people have with each other. You know, because this book surrounds itself with the relationships between a man and his slave, some people have found this book a kind of a roadmap for Christian social engagement. But as we're going to see, that's not the intent of the book. Christian social engagement, if it's ever effective, has to be the overflow of the life of Christ that we already enjoy between one another in the church. It's the overflow of the love we have for each other. So much has been said about the need for Christians to be salt and light, not only among our friends and work colleagues and family, but also in our culture. And much of what has been said, I I guess it's good, It deserves to be heard. It deserves to be considered. You know, some time ago, I heard a Christian speaker give the following analogy. He said, imagine you're living next to a stream of water that you need for drinking and taking care of your basic needs. Imagine also that all sorts of junk is constantly found in the river, pollutants, garbage, and so forth. And you spend most of your time fishing junk out of the river and purifying the water, but but things never change. And eventually, you're going to say to yourself, I'm going to stop fishing the junk out of the river. I'm going to get upstream and find out who's throwing the junk in the river in the first place. If I never deal with the source of the problem, nothing's ever going to change. And the point is this, pornography, materialism, relativism, life lived without moral foundations, a view that science has done away with the need for a creator. The belief that all worldviews and all religious ideas are equally valid and nothing should be preferred. And then, on the practical side, a life lived without lifelong enduring fellowship. A life where family and children are relegated to a lesser status and more. The, The idea that entertainment can replace the need for meaning and for churches and for God. That's just the kind of junk that's coming down the river. And often, as a part of discipleship, we try to help Christians deal with the junk and learn to be faithful to Christ in the midst of it. But where's the junk coming from? To ask that question is to ask the question of how Christians can influence the entire culture. Well, on the one hand, we might notice the junk is coming from the great urban centers of our country and from the great urban centers of the world. But it's not as if cities produce junk, as if living in a city is bad, and that cities of themselves produce anti-Christian ways of thinking and living. That's not the point. Uh, Instead, the point is this. Major centers of the world are also the centers of modern thinking. That's where we find universities producing secular thinkers and secular philosophers. But it's also major centers of the world that produce the world's media its educational structures, its entertainment industry, from television to sports to music to movies to the arts. Uh, From there also flow politics and and law. And in the Western world, the the cultural center has become profoundly anti-Christian. 
And to keep our analogy, that junk eventually flows to every home in the cities, in every suburb, and in every rural location in the culture. All of us live next to that river. Eventually, the ideals of a life lived without God becomes so pervasive so that people can no longer imagine a culture without the junk. So how do you stop that junk from getting into the river? Well, of course, if we live in a fallen world or in a world fallen from God, so that's what we might expect. But there's more. The early church not only invited individuals to turn from their own individual darkness and fly to Christ and his cross, but the presence of believers and the way in which they interacted with each other actually changed the culture of the ancient world. The way the church learned the life of Christ and his love changed the river. You know, the ancient Roman world where the church of Jesus Christ was born was, you know, it was a world with many of the same kinds of values as we have in our own. It was relativistic, in which all religious beliefs were considered equally valid. It was sensual, in which any form of sexual expression was to be applauded. It had a view of human life that was cheap. I'm not thinking here about the gladiatorial games in Rome. I'm thinking about a discovery that was made a few years back in which it was found that Roman sewer pipes were plugged with the skeletons of thousands of aborted fetuses as Roman women and couples who found babies to be inconvenient were simply aborted and thrown away like useless human tissue. And on top of that was the practice of simply abandoning unwanted children. That was the river of which the early church found itself living beside. Does that sound familiar? And what's the answer to that? You know, some people have argued that that what we need is for Christians to become more involved strategically in places where the junk is produced. We need Christian young people thinking about careers in academics, the sciences, in, in philosophy, in journalism, in politics, in education, and in the power structures of our nation. It is there that we need to be salt and light. This is the source of the cultural river. But all that, you know, that's good stuff, but, and but, listen, that might not solve anything at all. I think there are a couple of things that are missing. First, we live in a day of woeful biblical ignorance among Christian people. See, unless churches and Christians get back to the Bible with an expressed confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture, all strategy is going to be wasted. We will simply be influenced by the culture itself and not by the Word, Without redressing biblical illiteracy in our churches, we will make no impact at all. But there is another matter as well. We need to find ways in which the basic teaching of the Bible makes its way into the way we live out our lives in community. We need Christ-centered, biblically-directed Christian communities or Christian churches where the radical nature of the life of Christ gets lived out as an alternative to the poverty of values presented in our culture. And here's where the book of Philemon comes in. What we find in this book are the biblical teachings around conversion, the transformation that follows, and the consequence of love, of grace, of forgiveness, and reconciliation. Those biblical teachings get expressed in a real life test case, the relationship between a man and his slave. Now, at first, we might be tempted to be dismissive of this book. We can be grateful for the history of such profound Christians as William Wilberforce, Sir Charles Middleton, Thomas Clarkson, 
Hannah More, and others, and the moral force of a lifelong, tireless crusade to stop slavery in Great Britain, a crusade that that eventually succeeded. And in the United States, that battle took a great deal longer. But we now live in a part of the world where slavery has been outlawed, and indeed the Christian influence in this matter has been so great that slavery has been outlawed in most of the world. And so for that reason, we might think that the battle being presented here in this book is a battle over slavery, and it's a battle that has been fought, and now it's been won, and therefore we might look at this book as no more than a historical document and not a book that makes application to the way we live our lives and influence our culture today. But in that, I argue we're wrong. If one can imagine the nature of slavery— and then can imagine that slavery in the early church was not defeated through laws or warfare, but rather it was defeated in the radical new way in which Christian people actually learned the life of love, the life of forgiveness, and the life of reconciliation. Now, of course, the early church not only faced slavery as a barrier between people, they faced the problem of Jews and Gentiles who needed to learn how to get along. And they faced the issue of idolatry. They faced the issue of a sensuality which was pervasive and of whether Caesar should be called Lord or whether by refusing, Christians should forfeit their lives. And and with that, the nature of the relationship of the Christian to the state and and what one should do with the idea of patriotism. Well, the list goes on and on. And, And the point I'm making, I think, is simple. What Christians did was provide a lifestyle of the gospel that was so radical and so different and so distinctively dissimilar from all the cultures around them, it provided an alternative to those who were weary of the destructive patterns of the culture in which they lived. You see, they were tired of drinking from the polluted river that they were living next to, and more so. That alternative lifestyle was seen more clearly in the way in which early Christians loved each other. And the book of Philemon shows us how that was to be done. We're always encouraged and blessed by the generosity of those who share our heart for Bible teaching and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And we continue to be in awe Last month, we received a pledge from a group of ministry friends who are committed to matching your donation this month up to $125,000. I can't express enough appreciation for the potential impact of this pledge for ministry. I'm excited also to share that we're continuing our match into the month of July. So could I ask you to thoughtfully consider offering a financial gift today? Your gift of $50,000, $1,000 or more will be then matched up to $125,000, which with your help becomes $250,000 to support the ongoing Bible teaching of this ministry. You literally double the dollars you choose to give. What a great investment. Would you help us to take full advantage of this opportunity today? Call us at one 800 663 2425 or visit us and make your gift securely online at backtothebible.ca. The book of Philemon really does show us what an alternative lifestyle looks like, and that's why that book is so important to us today. This small book of only 25 verses 
provides us with a pattern, not only of changed lives, but a pattern of living in Christian community that transforms a culture around us. And it can be done in every single context where the Christian faith is found. It will change the river. So during this week, I'm going to ask you to join me in reading this tiny little book of Philemon. This book gives a snapshot of what life was like in the early church. I mean, everyday life. It will tell us a lot about what an authentic Christian life looked like in the context of the early church. But there's so much more. You see, Philemon is a personal letter. And if you can imagine intercepting someone's personal mail, you can learn a lot about that person, what they do, and how they live. Here's what we learn. The letter is from Paul, the great apostle, to a wealthy man by the name of Philemon. But it's not just a letter to Philemon. It's also a letter, according to verse 2, to the church that meets at Philemon's house. You know, we know that Philemon lived in the ancient city of Colossae. It's part of the Roman province of Asia, what is now the nation of Turkey. The city was built along a major trade route and was known for producing a a beautiful dark red wool cloth. And it was here that Philemon lived, and it was here that he conducted his business, and it was there that he became the leader in the church in that city. You probably already know this, but in case you don't, let me say it. The New Testament era had no church buildings. Churches would meet in homes through the week, much like what many churches do today when they have multiple Bible study groups meeting in various homes throughout the week. But of course, in the early church, there was no one building where all house churches could meet together. However, some wealthy Christians had very large homes with massive courtyards, and, and sometimes those wealthy followers of Jesus would allow Christians from all over the city to celebrate love feasts and worship services in their expansive homes. Philemon was one of those people, and he was also one of the Christian leaders in that city. But here's the kicker, and this often shocks us. Philemon was a slave owner. I say it shocks us, but it would have shocked no one in the ancient Roman world. Slavery, and I mean here that polluted junk flowing down the ancient Roman river, well, that was taken for granted in that world. You know, some estimates think that perhaps one-third of the population of the Roman Empire was made up of slaves. It's hard to come up with reliable numbers, I need to say that, but we can say in that world it would have been more shocking to find a wealthy businessman without slaves. But that's exactly what I'm talking about. If we're called upon to bring a radical alternative lifestyle into a culture in which we live, well, here's a test case. And if the early church couldn't even figure out the slave question, how could we expect them to provide an alternative to their culture? And so, what can we learn from them? You know, I've heard more than one liberal commentary on Philemon comment that the book of Philemon justifies slavery. And that's one of the reasons we can't look to the Bible, at least so the argument goes, to provide us with the ultimate ethic. But before I dive into that, let's take notice of some basic features of Roman slavery by comparing it to the form of slavery that we often think about, that is, slavery that was found in the United States. The black slavery movement in the United States, in England and in other places, was based entirely on race. That was not so in the ancient world. Second, the black slave movement was overwhelmingly oppressive because it even forbade slaves from ever learning to read or to write so that they could never be able to better themselves. 
Teaching slaves to read was considered a crime in the United States. In contrast, sometimes ancient Roman slaves were doctors and lawyers. Some very famous slaves were philosophers and teachers. Some were actors and entertainers. Some slaves had considerable financial investments of their own, and they were doing much better than a great many freedmen. So being a slave did not determine your treatment. There's a third contrast. In the black slave movement of the Western world, most slaves served as slaves for life with no hope of ever being released. They were born that way and they died that way. Well, that happened as well in the ancient Roman world, but it wasn't so of necessity. Some slaves served for a period of time, either to pay off a debt or to serve out the sentence of a crime. And when a prescribed period of time had been served, that slave would be allowed to go free. You think I'm justifying Roman slavery? Well, let me be clear. In any form, slavery is oppressive. It belittles a man or woman's basic humanity, and it is a sin. Whether in the early 1800s, in the U.S., or in the ancient Roman world, no one wanted to be a slave. I'm only trying to get us to understand what we're reading here within the context of the ancient Roman world, not through the filter of the American civil rights experience. And whether in more recent experience or in ancient Rome, slaves were considered property, and some were beaten and killed by their masters. Even though Rome had passed laws to make slavery more humanitarian, slavery in and of itself simply can't be justified ever. And because of this, many slaves ran from their masters and would try to lose themselves in the large urban centers, the cities of the ancient Roman world. And so there were slave catchers who would try to catch them, and often they were returned to their masters and then they would be severely punished. And this is where we pick up the drama in this small letter of Philemon. The Apostle Paul wrote Philemon while he was in prison in Rome. Many years before, probably while Paul was ministering in Ephesus, he had met this wealthy man, a man by the name of Philemon. He is from Colossae, and through Paul's ministry, Philemon had come to Christ. His personal life had been transformed. He now knew that Christ had died for him. He, he knew that Christ made claims on his life. And Philemon repented of his sins, and he surrendered his life into the loving hands of Jesus and became a redeemed and forgiven child of God. A and after that, a very strong friendship had developed between these two men, the apostle and the wealthy businessman. But that's not the end of the story. God had designs on this friendship, designs so deep and lasting that what would happen in their friendship would mold a pattern of Christian teaching for the Christian transformation of society that would become the teaching tool from that day forward. So let's pick up the drama. You know, somehow, and we don't know how, but while Paul was in Rome and in imprisonment, Paul met a young man by the name of Onesimus, whom he led to faith in Christ. And this young man was, in fact, a slave who had run away from Philemon. Well, was that a coincidence? Hardly. Uh, what was to follow was to change the way we think of the Christian faith in relation to culture. Now, after Onesimus had come to Christ, Paul sends him back to his friend Philemon, the slave owner. And this is what's so shocking to many of us. We would have thought that a Christian would hate slavery and would never send a slave back. Now, before we protest too loudly, we notice that along with Onesimus, one other thing came back. 
It was Paul's own letter to his friend Philemon. So listen to the first verse because it sets the tone for what is to follow. Paul writes, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. That sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? But I wonder if we recognize how profound this simple beginning is. Paul has some very pointed things to say about slavery, but he's going to do so without breaking fellowship with his friend Philemon. So this week, we're going to learn that the Christian life, well, it's not just about pointing out what is polluted in the river. I mean, anyone can do that. See, this letter will show that the Christian life is all about fellowship. It's about love. It's about respect. It's about honor. It's about decency. And it's about a life lived in a community in which members of the Christian church come to realize not only that Christ loves them, but that Christ has mandated them to love one another and to be committed to one another. If we learn the life of Christ, we do so much more than to point out what is wrong. We show how to live within a context of what is right. We show what the new culture actually looks like. And that's the life that Christ wants among us. So as we study this book of Philemon, let's concentrate not just on the issue of slavery, but let's rather concentrate on what it means to love one another, how to reconcile with one another, how to deal with estrangement, and how to make matters right, and how to be a witness to the world in which we live. You know, John, I think this all this junk stuff flowing down the river can be pretty ominous. And when we think about how do we protect ourselves or our children or others from all this stuff that's happening around us? It's so important for us not to react out of fear. Thank you for that question, Ben. I mean, there are a great many parents, as you and I know, who are so afraid and, uh, and react out of fear rather than, you know, reacting by saying, Lord, you will show me in this day what to do. So, I think we can use the book of Philemon to talk about what authentic Christian community can look like. That that whole idea of the alternative lifestyle is that God has called every single local church to be an alternative to that junk that's flowing down the river. And um, I think we'll find not only will that give what we need for our children, but it will give what we also need to those non-Christians around us. What a great beginning to this series, John. Thank you. Remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. This week, tune into Dr. John's series from Back to the Bible Canada, An Alternative Lifestyle. If Christians are called to do more than just condemn what is wrong, how do we do it? There's a culture that exists today that is destructive and harmful. So how can we live as an alternative to it? How can we truly live out the alternative lifestyle that God has called us to live? I invite you to listen to this week's series as together we can begin to understand what it looks like to live out a Christian faith that sets us apart and offers a glimpse of what it means to be an authentic follower of Jesus. God has called us to be set apart. So what's stopping us? Listen every day this week to follow along with the series, An Alternative Lifestyle, and call us today to receive the entire series on CD for free at 1-800-663-2425.
or visit backtothebible.ca.